I want to start today by celebrating a win, uh, sharing some good news. Anybody use some good news? Some good news. Uh, so this past Tuesday morning, uh, me and about 50 other men gathered together here for our first ever, in a while at least, men's gathering. It was a great time experiencing that. So for those of you in the room, some of you guys, your husband or your sons or, or your boyfriends or the ones who showed up here in this room, can we just make some noise for those guys? Yeah. It was great to do that. And again, uh, that thing was from 6.30 a.m. to 7.30 a.m. So I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I, that was uh, exceeded my expectations. I was really proud of that. And uh, maybe if you're one of the guys who missed that, uh, we sent a link out this week. If you didn't get that, you can email us. We'll, we'll try to make sure you can have that so you can catch up. Uh, but this Tuesday morning, we're going to be gathering together once again right here in this room, 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. Uh, for you men of God in the room. Man, now's the time. Let's step up. Let's step into what God's calling us to be. Uh, believe me, right now, you have what it takes. It's just drawing that out. And so I'd love to be here with you guys uh, this Tuesday, 6.30 to 7.30. Um, we're in a series called Solid Ground. And what this series is, is tapping into is this metaphor that Jesus gave at the very end of the greatest sermon he ever preached, where he talked about a wise builder and a foolish builder. He said, a wise builder is one who acknowledges who I am, who, who hears all the things that I've said that believes the right things about me, but doesn't just leave it there, but actually goes and puts those things into practice. And by putting those things into practice, they're allowing their life to be built on the solid ground of actually doing something with what they say is true. And he said, there's a foolish builder. And that foolish builder is somebody who they may acknowledge some things about Jesus. They're usually the same person who got in the same minivan and drove to church uh, and sat in a row down the row from the guy who actually put the things in practice. They came to the same church. They dropped their kids off in the same children's ministry. But this person heard all the things about Jesus that were true and kind of went, mm, yeah, I think those are true. But it didn't change what they did. They lived their life how they wanted to. He says, this is a person whose life is gonna fall in with a crash. Because for the, both the wise builder and the foolish builder, they both experienced the same thing. what they experience? Storms. And in your life, you're going to experience storms. We all experience storms. That's the one thing that you're not going to get out of this life without having going through is storms. And this whole Solid Ground series is, is talking about how can we build lives that can withstand the storms so that the generations after you would be able to look back and say, my dad... He built his house on solid ground. And our family is the way it is now because my dad built it on solid ground. Or my mom, I know, man, if I woke up and I snuck downstairs, I, I knew where I would find her. I'd find her in God's word, by the fireplace, in that chair, with that blanket, with that cup of coffee. I know she built it on solid ground. Because that's, that's the kind of family, that's the kind of church, that's the kind of community that we're trying to build here. And so, again, we, we kind of had a week where we kind of threw in an add-on message. I want to recap a little bit to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, so in this series, as we're talking about solid ground, we're walking through this acronym SOLID, S-O-L-I-D. So week one, we talked about surrender. When we talked about surrendering, we talked about we have to know really what is our original intent from God. That if we wanna build our life on solid ground, we have to surrender to the God who has purchased that life and made that life available to us. And so what that really starts, the whole reason that there's even a life worth building, that you have life in your lungs, we gotta figure out why. And this is the big question of identity. It's that big, 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 big question of why do I exist? Why am I here? What's the purpose? And the way we define that was this. We said you were created to be an incarnational, which means in the flesh, you were created to be an incarnational, in the flesh, glorifying expression of the nature and character of God, the king and ruler of the universe who commands you to rule over everything that he has created in a way that magnifies him. Now, again, 
That's a mouthful. Uh, the way we started kind of taking notes around MCC is like just taking pictures of stuff. So, you know, take a picture of that and look at it when you would normally look at other stupid stuff on your phone. Look at something that actually may be edifying. Um, take a picture of that. Um, Here's a way to summarize this. We got into a small group after this, and uh, Rustin, he's the guy who leads our small group, and he said, okay, so uh, what does it mean that you were created to be an incarnational in the flesh, glorifying expression of the nature and character of God and the king and rule of the universe who commands you to rule over everything he's created in a way that magnifies him? What does that mean to you? And we all kind of looked around and like, can we put that on the screen somewhere? Here's how I would sum that up. What's my purpose in life? Why did God create me? Because God, again, he created me in his image. Giraffes aren't in his image. Cats are definitely not in his image. He created me in his image. So what in the world does that even mean? So he created me in his image. That means I'm supposed to image and reflect his character. But then it doesn't mean that God just created me in his image. It also means that if you read Genesis, we're gonna get to in a second, Genesis 1, uh, 28, he also gave us authority to rule and to reign as his representatives. And the way we talked about this is this word magnify. So to sum up that big paragraph that I just read to you guys, what's our purpose in life? To glorify and magnify God. Let's all say that together. What's my purpose? Glorify, magnify. Look at you guys, man, you're thought out. You're ready to go. Glorify and magnify. Now again, glorify God is to bring him glory through the way we live our life. Magnify, that's what we do to the onlooking world around. Magnify means to make God look as he really actually is. So that if someone was to watch you, we talked about this week one and you guys chuckled. So that if someone was to watch how you parented all week long, that at the end of you parenting, you could go, and this is what God is like. And that if somebody watched how you spend money all week long, at the end of your budget for the, that week, you could look at how you spent money and that it would magnify God. And you could say, as you looked at the end of that budget, you would go, and this is what God is like. And what you did when nobody was watching, but God was watching, that it could be said, and this is what God is like. That's what magnify is. And that, honestly, we all kind of, we all chuckle at the funny things because you know we've seen how we parent, we see how we budget, and we see what we do during our breaks at work, and we see all those different things. There is a part where we kind of laugh about that but when you really know that that is actually creator God's intent in your life, that you would magnify him everywhere you are, it is kind of intimidating, right? To go, oh, that's really what my purpose is here for. It's not just to get by. It's not just to get a paycheck. It's not to just you know, get a college degree or to get married or have some kids. It's to magnify God by the way I do everything that he's created me to do. That's a big thing. And so we talked about, I've got to surrender to what he says is true, his true purposes, and we said where all that breaks down is we trade the truth of God for a lie. We read this passage in Romans that says that, that, that we, and then we're all in with this, we exchange the truth about God for an, a lie. And we called that lie a life. So the first step we said, if we want to build a life on solid ground, we got to surrender to the God who gave us that ground in the first place by sending his son to this ground that is planet earth, by spilling his blood on the ground so that we could have a life that could be built solidly. And today we're going to talk about Obey. Because it's one thing, guys, hey, track with me on this. It's one thing to go, God, I surrender to you. And it's another thing to go, I'm actually gonna obey. Because you prove that Jesus is Lord, not by just saying, I surrender. You prove he's Lord by obeying what he tells you to do immediately after you say, I'm surrendered. So you go, I'm surrendered. He says, get baptized. Well, what you do after that is gonna prove whether or not he really is Lord. You can say, God, I'm surrendered to you. He's gonna say, stop living together. And that's gonna determine whether or not he's actually Lord in your life. You can say, I'm surrendered. He's gonna say, go change diapers in children's ministry. 
And that's going to determine whether or not you're a saint from heaven and he actually is Lord of your life. That's going to be the things that determine it. It's one thing to go, God, I'm surrendered. But the way you know he's actually Lord is if you obey what he tells you to do immediately after you say, I am surrendered. And so today we're going to lean into that obedience. We're going to figure out what in the world that means. And today I'm going to walk you through a story. Uh, Men in the room, if I could tell you a story about a man who with one wrong decision encountered 930 years of regret, would you listen to it? I hope you will, because I'm gonna tell you a story today about a man who experienced 930 years of regret, and I hope you're gonna be able to learn something from it. Let's pray, and we'll dive in. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it uh, has remained true all these years. We're gonna dive back into the very uh, first book of the Bible and, and from the moment that it was, it was written for the moment that all of these things happened, uh, your word remains the same, your character remains the same, your love remains the same. You are the unchanging one true God. You will not be reinvented and you will not be mocked and God forgive us and allow us to repent of all the times that we may have tried to reinvent you into something that you really are not to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. God, we are not people who create God in our image. We are created in your image, God. Help us to learn a little bit more about what that means. Save us, even from ourselves, in your name, amen. All right, so if you've got a Bible, go, this will be an easy one to find, Genesis chapter one. Genesis one, uh, we're gonna start in verse 27, 127, uh, great numbers. That's my birthday, it's coming up, uh, shameless plug. Um, Genesis 1, says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And again, didn't create anything else in his image, only us. He created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We covered this last week. I'll say it again, uh, just so we all kind of know where we're at in this. He didn't create man a little bit more in his image and women a little bit less in his image so that one was better than the other. He created both of them equally to represent and image him forth into a world, all right? From the very beginning, all right? So he created them in his image. So they've got that. They're they're showing his character forth into a world. And then let's go to uh, verse 28. After that, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every creature that moves on the ground. All right, again, we covered this a little bit in week one. What God is doing, he's not just giving them uh, the ability to be created in his image, but he's also giving them authority. Uh, Some of your translations may translate some of what's going on there. He says he gave them dominion over birds and all these other types of creepy crawly creatures. He gives them dominion over those things. He, he says, I'm giving you my authority to rule and reign in this territory that I have now created for you. So you're created in my image. You have my character. You have my authority. Now I want you to pick up on something because what this really means, if God really is who he is, if God really is the creator and king of the universe, then a creation created with his character, created in his image and created with his authority is not just humans. It's royalty royalty, royal image bearers of the king of kings. Now, again, you probably didn't roll out of bed thinking, I'm royalty this morning. Now, some of you did, and you need to dial it back a little bit. Um, (laughs) Most of us did not wake up this morning going, I am royalty. 
We're the same people who burn our mouths on Hot Pockets and eat potato chips off of our chests when nobody's watching. Like we're the same people, I think there is gum under this table because I put it there a few weeks ago. Like we're the same people who do those things, but yet God says you are actually royalty because you're created in my image. And I am, again, sometimes we just come to church and we don't pause and actually realize and think about these things. Like if you really believe that there is a God, a sovereign, ruling, reigning God who is in control of everything of the entire universe and we are created in his image, then that means something huge. And this idea of royalty is actually something that is found cover to cover in the Bible. We're not scum of the earth. We're not worm dirt. We're not just some things that God kind of just takes care of and just fixes and does all these things. He actually says we're royalty. And we talked about this here. We've kind of laid this out in Matthew or in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. I want to go all the way to the book of Revelation where the story ends to tell you this is a cover to cover theme. There are undertones throughout the entire Bible that we actually were created. And God's original intent for your life is reigning and ruling and royalty. Look at Revelation 22.5. It's gonna be on the screens. I'm gonna kind of walk through these pretty quick. So um, you can take a picture, you can take some notes, follow along. I'm not, I don't have time to unpack these. I just want you to see them. Revelation 22.5 says, there will be no more night. It's talking about when Jesus comes and restores everything. This is what the, the renewed forever um, post Jesus coming of Armageddon, uh, Revelation, um, all those different types of things, whether it's um, rapture, disregard all the differences and views that you may have on what in the world is going on in Revelation. Here's one of the things that we can know is true. He's giving a description of what we will actually be doing there. Do I know what helicopters and dragons and raptors and snakes and people with swords coming out of their faces and animals and creatures with 20,000 eyes on them mean? Not even close. I'm not gonna pretend to tell you what those mean. And if you find a pastor who says, send me $15 and I'll tell you what those things mean, that's a charlatan and a liar and run away from them, okay? Here's what we can know is true. Like this passage is not hard to understand. 22.5 says, there will be no more night. There will not be any need for the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. The Lord God will give them light. And they, he's not talking about angels, He's not talking about those seraphim or cherubim or any of those other types of things. Friend, he's talking about me and you who are in Christ, who will be called up yonder as the old saints used to say. He says, and they will reign forever and ever. Isn't that crazy? Like, I don't know what you thought heaven was gonna be like. If you thought you were just gonna look like one of those precious moment mugs and you were gonna be on a a cloud playing a harp and doing some things like that, it says we're gonna reign. Like there, there's gonna be something to rule over. There's gonna be decisions to make, authority. There's gonna be things, you're gonna have a job that he calls you to rule and reign over. And a lot of times we, th- we hear Jesus talked about as the king of kings. And we think, oh, well, that's talking about like he's the king of kings. That means like he's better than Herod and, and Darius and Nebuchadnezzar and all those other kings. Well, think about it like this. When he talks about him as the king of kings and we are ones who reign in heaven, what that maybe actually means, and there's, there, there's definitely, I'm just throwing this out there. There's definitely some theologians and pastors who would, who would go this route. I'm still trying to figure it out myself. But what if he's actually talking about us in heaven with him? That, that we are all in heaven as kings and he is the king of kings there in that place. And he is the Lord of lords there. And so he says, you're gonna reign. And that's, that's awesome to think about. And it, it gives me more anticipation of what heaven is gonna be like. I, I, I love to sing, it's great. Our, our worship band does an amazing job. But this image of heaven where we're just all gonna constantly be standing around God singing, again, maybe I'm sure even that would be amazing and awesome. But if you read your Bible, we're gonna do more than that. 
Another one is 2 Timothy 2.12. I said I wasn't going to spend a lot of time talking about them. I got to keep my word to you guys. We're going to be here till 4.30. Um, it says, if we endure, this is, this is Paul writing to a church. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And he's talking about what's coming. It's all future oriented. We will reign with him. Romans 5.17, it's one of my favorite ones that, that lean into this. For if by the trespasses of one man, Adam, we're gonna get into that a lot today, death reigned through that one man. So through Adam and his mistake, Eve's mistake as well, um, death came and reigned. The consequences of sin is always death. Death reigned. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace? You can just write a parenthesis around that. Abundant provision of grace means Jesus and the gift of righteousness. Again, parentheses around gift of righteousness and put Jesus. How much more through the abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. First Peter 2.9 says, for we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. The next time you start arguing with another person who's a Christian on Facebook, remember you are royal priesthood and the world is looking on to see how you treat other royal priests. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're something different. You're set apart. You're God's special possession. You say that again. Some of you feel like you're worthless. You, you, you serve no good. I want you to hear this. You are God's special possession. You are not a white elephant gift to God. He didn't unwrap you and go, oh, thanks. Like he purposely chose you. He said, you are my special possession. You're mine. And here's why. Again, it's not just so that he can put you on a shelf and say, yay. Here's why you're his special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Declare to who? To the world? To, to what? Big question. But we are a royal priesthood. Okay. So if this is all the case, and we're not just here um, as just human beings walking on earth, trying to get by, trying to make budget, trying to uh, not get the lights turned off, trying to get kids to be raised and to not go into street gangs and, and treat people as decent parts of society. Like if, if, if life is more than that, that in life, we're not just building a life, but maybe if we're royalty, we're actually building a kingdom. We're part of something bigger. So what that means for us, and again, this is all if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, well, then, then you're not a part of building his kingdom. You are building life on your own. And again, I would say that that is a life that is, is headed full into not being able to withstand the storms that this life will face. But if you are in Christ, life in Christ equals kingdom building, which is the way I would put it is life in Christ is, is kingdom building. It's, it's training for reigning. All those verses talk about that's, that's what we have to look forward to. Those are the things that's coming. We will reign with Christ. So the, by the way we live our life now, that is training to prepare us for what will come. Because again, we receive Christ. He lives in us and through us. And as we walk and live and do the things right now, there's this big Christian word that's happening called sanctification. It's us being made into the image and likeness of God. It's not just us trying to pretend to do Jesus things. It's not just us going, okay, what do Christians do? And let's try to do this. It's literally your inward operating, inside operating system being rewired, hardwired into a whole new thing, transformed into something brand new, that is living embodiment of Christ here on earth, preparing you to reign and rule forever, which is what is according to these passages we've read, it's the promise. So what I wanna do now is I wanna shift a little bit. And I wanna talk in specifically to men in the room. I wanna lean in and talk specifically to the men in the room because I feel like there is, I'm gonna be careful with my words here, 
there is a unique call as you go through Genesis as to what our responsibility is and to how we are supposed to obey this God's rule. And because again, if, if we are this royal, if there is this royal bloodline that is now in us, we have a call, but at the end of the day, you're not the king of king and the Lord of lords. You answer to and obey him. You are a, a royal image bearer who has been entrusted by him to image him forth into a lost and broken world. But you take your orders ultimately from him. You obey him and him alone. Now, if we look at the creation account, it is clear that there are unique roles and responsibilities given both to Adam and Eve. And today in this moment, I wanna take a second and lean specifically into Adam's. I wanna lean specifically into men. And if we're a family here, this is kind of how we talk about things at MCC. There comes a time when, when for everybody's family, you've experienced this even in your own home, where you need to lean in and, and talk to and care for a certain member of the family. And men, it's, it, it breaks my heart, breaks the leaders and elders of this church heart because we feel like there's being so much left on the table. There's, God has so much more in store for your life than punching a clock and going to Panama City once a year on vacation. He, it, there's so much more in store. Why do we get so fired up about baseball and college football and everything else? It's because God has hardwired something inside the heart of every man to get fired up and enthusiastic about something. But we trade the fired up to see the mission of God move down the field, to see the lost and broken find a place where they can be healed and redeemed and restored. And we trade that, that zeal that God put in there for those types of things. And we trade that zeal for bulldogs and braves. We trade that zeal for, for motorcycles. We trade that zeal for fishing and boats. We trade that zeal for golf. And God put that in us so that the fatherless could find the father, so that orphans and widows could be protected and cared for, so that, so that all throughout the hallway in children's ministry, there's men of God pouring into kids alongside of the women of God who are pouring into those kids, so that the divorce numbers in the church begin to not look like the divorce numbers and the rest of the world. We're leaving a lot on the table. And I could go through and I could give you, <clears throat> I give you stat after stat, because all the research has been done to prove the point. I could give you stat after stat about what, what happens when um, a, a teenager starts to come to church, the likelihood that his whole family will. What if a, a mom comes to church, the likelihood that the family will. Or that if a dad comes to church, and the likelihood that the family will there. And those are, those are wild. I could give you the stats on how many uh, kids are growing up in fatherless homes. I could give you all the stats, but I don't have to give you stats because everybody in this room, most, most everybody in this room, most everybody watching online, you don't need a stat because you've got a story. You've got a story of how a father, a man, a boyfriend, a one night stand, a boss or a teacher or some other man did not go with the influence and the obedience that God had told him to. And he said, I'm gonna be the king of my life and you are a subject in my kingdom and I will either choose to neglect you or I will choose to abuse you and use you and then move on. See, we don't need stats because everybody in this room, you probably have a story of a man not doing what God would call a man to do and how it hurts you. You don't need a stat. So I wanna lean in specifically to Adam, his character. What happened in this story what we see in the story, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what we're looking for and then we're gonna find it as we go. We see in this story, God lay out, here is what I'm calling my creation of man to do. This is what it looks like for a man to obey. 
and to live and build this life in this kingdom I've created in a way that will glorify me. The first thing we see uh, is this, is when he called to obey, means he's been created and chosen by God. And royal men surrender and obey God alone. That's what God tells them. And we're gonna walk through that. We're gonna find that in this passage. Created, chosen by God. Again, those two key things right there. Created and chosen by God. And again, I hope you're looking at yourself like that, fellas. Created and chosen by God. Royal men, which is what you are if you're in Christ. Royal men surrender to and obey God alone. And again, the big question there is did the king, did the royal man listen to God alone? Did he listen to himself? And again, this isn't, I'll bubble this out to be an everybody thing, not just a male, uh, king, um, a male thing, but a male and female. Did you listen to God alone? Most of the time, the, the voice this, that we're listening to more than God is not CNN, Fox News, or the person down the road. Most of the time, the voice that you're listening to more than God that undermines your life more than anything else is yours. So from there, after we obey, we listen to the voice of God alone. Next thing is empowered by God. Royal men provide for everything and everyone in their territory. Provide. Empowered by God. Again, that's where it comes from. I'm not uh, providing for everything in my territory because of my own goodwill, because of my efforts. I'm providing because I'm empowered by God. I provide for everything and everyone in my territory. Next one. It's convicted and led by God. Royal men protect their territory's borders against all enemies that would seek to kill, steal, and destroy it. All right? So to summarize those, put them in something we can understand. What God's call on us, if you're a male in this room, whether you're a young man growing into this or or you're an old man trying to uh, recoup and fix some things and trying to lean into a future that's better than your past, what God's call on our life is, and I think this is all bound up in God's original intent and creation, is to obey and listen to his voice alone and to provide and protect. So obey, provide, and protect. And if you put all those three together and call it, what is that? That's called leading. That's what men do. So let's walk through. Let's see where this falls apart for Adam. Let's see where it falls apart for us. See what we can learn from it. If you got a Bible, go to Genesis chapter two. Jump down to verse 15. Adam gets a good bit of this right. We're going to see where he gets it right. And then we're going to see where he gets it wrong. So for here, 2.15, start there. Genesis 2.15. says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. There he is. There's almost all that there. God puts him there says, do this. He listens. And he starts providing and taking care of what he's got to take care of. 16. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat from that, you will certainly die. Again, God's giving, he's saying, my voice has gotta be the most important one in my life. I'm gonna tell you what you need to do. I'm gonna give you your commands. You can eat of every fruit here. And again, there's a lot of fruit. It's not like there's like two and it's just that one and that one. He's in a garden, friends. He's in a garden. God says, don't eat from that fruit. And what I love about God, and he does this in my life, he does this in your life, he did it in Adam's life, is he always tells you the repercussions and the consequences of obey or disobeying him right up front. He says, if you don't listen to me and you go eat from that fruit, you will surely die. And the consequences of disobeying God then are exactly the same as they are now. Sin will ultimately lead to death. God does not, that's not some like hidden thing like, oh no, that's what Satan wants to hide. But God, on the other hand, he lets that very be, be very known and very upfront. So God 
says, Adam, if you're gonna be a man after me, if you're gonna be a royal image bearer, first and foremost, you have to obey, listen to my voice above any other voice. Now, here's where it starts to get interesting and a little romantic. So ladies, lean in. The Lord God, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone, which amen, fellas, none of the dumbest things you'll ever do, you did because you were alone. I, and I did because, uh, let me put myself in there. Um, I will. You remember when I shaved my head last year? That was because I was alone. Um, yeah, <laughs> proof positive. Um, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And again, we see name stuff in, in the Bible. Name is not just like giving a name like... Um, you know, I, I, I watch a TV show with Kevin Costner on it, and so I want to name my next kid Kevin. Like, that's, that's, that's not, that's how we name stuff. In the Bible, name, it was, there was so much more bound up in what you named something. It was also giving its identity and helping it to be, un, helping it to understand what its identity and place was in the grander scheme of creation. And so when Adam is providing names for something, he's not just burbling stuff out of his mouth and this thing with stripes on it runs by, he's like, zebra. And another thing runs by and it's really got a long neck. He's like, graph. And you know, like that's not what's, he's, he's placing them in order and giving them part of their identity so that they know where they fit in the grander scheme of things. So, um, verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds and the sky, all the wild animals. Uh, but it says for Adam, there was no suitable helper found. So, so nothing could meet Adam's needs. Nothing could um, be one that would receive how Adam would want to meet its needs. But as you read this verse of 18 through 20, what you do see is Adam is practicing his dominion. He is naming these things. He is taking the authority given by God to rule, reign, and govern this environment he's now been created in. Verse 21 through 22, this is again where it gets interesting and romantic. So the Lord God caused a man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed the place up with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And I believe that that's probably like, and again, I can't be like Barry White, R&B, like singing. It was really the first love song ever written. Like this is, if you look in your Bibles, it's written and it kind of bubbles out because it was written and it was made to be known as poetry. Like this is Adam singing the first love song over his wife. Now, this is really important. And Adam also names her, which again is giving, not just here's your name, but this is giving identity. This is giving character. This is helping understand where you fit in this place. What you see Adam doing is immediately as she's created, he actually starts doing what God intended him to do in obeying, providing, and protecting. Right off the bat, he starts providing for her. He provides love, oneness, intimacy, security. He's doing those things through his words. And essentially, I'm gonna paraphrase a little bit kind of how I would, you know, this is bound up in what Adam is saying. He's saying, in the same way that I would protect me, I'm gonna protect you. You are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We are one. You're a part of me, I'm a part of you. I don't know where I end and you begin. And I'll take care of you. I'm not going anywhere. In the same way that it would be impossible for me to leave myself, I will never leave you, Eve. You will never be lonely. And for you women in the room, who at the core of your heart crave security, that is not a product of the fall. I believe that was hardwired into the heart of Eve the moment God created her. 
in Adam as he speaks these words into her. He, he is showing her that this is a place in this environment here with me, this is a place where you can be secure. When he says bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh is Adam's way of saying, I don't know where I end and you begin. We are now one. In the same way I would protect myself from enemy, harm, and disease, I will protect you from enemy, harm, and disease because you are me and I am you and we are one. And then we look at our own marriages and we go, something must have happened from right here because I don't get that. And ladies, I mean, you can look at the men or boyfriends or whatever you've had in your life and they're not that. Or, or maybe they were that to get something from you and then they weren't that anymore. And so something, something is badly broken and something, something went wrong because that's not our reality. Let's see what went wrong. Go to Genesis chapter three. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat of any tree in the garden? See, again, enemy enters in and his primary way that he attacks is he attacks what God has said is true. And remember, God's identity, he is the one true God. So what Satan wants to do, he says, well, what did that one true God really say? Is that one true God really true? He wants to redefine and question what God has said is true. Verse two and three. It says, the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat from the tree in the garden, but God said, uh, God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Which by the way, God said nothing about touching it. He just said eating it. So there was obviously some communication breakdown between Adam and Eve somewhere down the line, which who would have thought? Um, <laughs> so verse four, uh, Satan gives his response. Snake gives his response. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes are going to be open. You'll be just like God. You're going to know good and evil. And again, listen to what Satan's doing. He, Because he, he's done it to you. He says, God's keeping something from you. You know what? You earn this. You deserve this. God's only, he only, he's only keeping this from you because he doesn't want you to be like him. We talked about this last week, Satan's blueprint. Look inside. What do you want? What's best for you? Look around. And Eve didn't have a hard time looking around. I mean, she had a snake sitting right there going, eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it. Let me tell you why you need to eat it. Let me give you some wisdom about why you need to eat it. And then verse six through seven, you see the fall. It says that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, again, she looked at it. She said, this is good for food. Now, again, God had already told Adam and Adam had obviously told Eve some form of don't touch the tree. It's almost like Adam, God said, don't eat it. And, and Adam's trying to set an extra boundary. like, don't even touch it. So she knew something. But she saw it was good for food, which again, it was not. She made that determination in her own mind. She redefined what God had said about it. It was pleasing to the eye. And it probably was. Sin usually is pleasing to the eye. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. Wisdom that God wasn't ready for her to have yet. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. Verse 7. 
Then the eyes of them both were open, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Again, look at the passage. Uh, we, we see Satan's blueprint for, for allowing their life to crash. And two bites of a fruit, the whole perfect, uh, unadulterated, unmessed with unity in the garden, and two bites of fruit, it's completely crashed. The storm of this little snake slithering in, bringing his temptation, causes it all to fall on his face. And what happens here, proceeding in this story, I don't have time to go back and unpack it all here, but God shows up. He walks into the garden. He knows something is up. And he confronts Adam first. Which again, again, men and women were created equally in God's image. But I do think there's an extra place of responsibility when something goes wrong that God is going to go directly to the men in the room. And so he comes to Adam. says, Adam, what's going on, man? Jesus fruit. And Adam, perfect deflection here. Uh, this woman you gave me. Like there were more to choose from. This, one, this woman that you gave me, she gave it to me, and that's the whole reason I ate this. I mean, again, deflection is admission of guilt, you know, bar, bar none. Like at the moment you call somebody on something, they start telling you what you did last week, you're going, okay, thank you for apologizing. So Adam goes, it's Eve's fault. Eve, same deal, deflection. This snake slithered up. I didn't know you had these things in the garden. Adam hadn't got to naming this one yet. Just slithered up. I didn't know where it came from. Eve starts making up her excuses, telling us the snake. And meanwhile, the snake's just sitting over there laughing. And that's how Satan loves to work in our lives. He loves to hand you the gas and the lighter and watch you set your world on fire and sit in the corner and watch it burn. That's what he wants to do. He knows he can't get to God. He's already, he's already tried that, that failed. I don't have time to get in all that right now. He knows he can't get to God. So what he wants to do, is he wants to go after God's royal image bearer. That's why he goes after Adam and Eve because his theology, his logic is going, okay, I can't beat God, but if I can beat God's creation, his image bearers, his character, his ruling reigning bloodline here on earth, if I can defeat them, then I can just defeat God too. And so he's sitting in the corner laughing, cutting up everything else. From there, again, I want you to go back and read through, read through all of three this week. God gives them their curses, he gives Adam a curse, he gives Eve a curse, he gives a snake a curse. He tells them what's gonna be the consequences of what you just did. And he kicks them out of the garden. To the snake, he says, and this is the first prophecy of Jesus, I love it. He says, Eve, she is gonna give birth to a son and you are gonna strike his heel, but he's gonna crush your head. And this is the first prophecy of Jesus, the one who crushes the head of sin, crushes the ultimate poison. You're gonna strike his heel, which is the cross, but he's gonna crush your head. And the stone that was rolled away is the one that crushed the head. So let's look at this. Let's see where it went wrong. Let's see where Adam lost the kingdom. First of all, we see Adam. And again, I'm gonna kind of summarize. If you put what God says is the curse to Eve and the curse to Adam, I'm gonna summarize a little bit of what, how that implies and how that finds its way out. Essentially, he says to Adam, Adam, because you tried to live your life apart from me, because you listen to your wife, your life is going to be full of pain and insecurity. Every day you're gonna work the ground. Every day you're gonna cause pain, you're gonna experience pain as you try to prove that you have enough and that you are enough. And the primary way, again, you see this in what God says to Eve as her curse, the primary way that you'll typically try to do it is by ruling over, pushing down and exploiting women. And that's what men try to do when they live their life apart from God. Now. Before you send me the email, it's not a sin to listen to your wife, fellas. Um, women, <laughs> don't delete that. I'd already, I know it's probably already typed. But it is a sin 
to listen to your wife or any other voice in your life that tells you to do something that's contrary to the voice of God. And as, as God created Adam to be this uh, leading, uh, providing and protecting uh, character here in the garden, he abdicated that first role and responsibility of obeying and listening to God's voice alone as he takes and eats of the fruit. And again, it keeps going wrong from there. It didn't just stop at that place. He was supposed to provide and protect. And kings are supposed to provide. And Adam had, had just, again, remember back to the love song, the poem, the, the R&B uh, jam. Uh, Adam had just made this beautiful promise to Eve. He just said, I'm not gonna leave you. You're my bone of my bone, my flesh of my flesh. He was providing for her. Now, two questions for you. First one is this. Where was Eve when God told Adam not to eat from the tree? Where was she at? She wasn't even there yet. Like she hadn't even been created yet. So whose job was it to tell Eve? We covered this. It was, it was Adam's job. And now, did he tell her? He, he told her something. I, again, there might have been some communication breakdown. She had some form of don't eat from this. Now, here's the better question. Where was Adam when Eve was be, being deceived by Satan? Right there, right? Look at, look at Genesis 6, uh, 3, 6. Where was he at? Genesis 3, 6. See exactly how it says in the Bible. He also gave some, she also gave some to her husband. Who was with her? Right there. Now, what was his job, guys? Like his job was to provide and protect. Now, again, he had provided something and he knew the outcome, she knew the outcome, but did he protect? He was right there with her. And write this down, fellas, he did nothing. He was passive, he was quiet. Maybe he was working on something. Maybe he was petting a dog. I don't know. Whatever happened in this moment, he did nothing. As all of this was going down, as all of this was transpiring, and this beautiful, perfect kingdom that God had entrusted him to build, two bites of apple fell with a great crash. He loses it all and gets kicked out of the garden. Now, maybe ask the question, well, what in the world should he have done? Like, okay, this all happened. This is terrible. What, what, what should Adam have done? If we're supposed to provide and protect, and Adam did none of that, instead of providing and protecting, he was just passive, what should it look like? Well, we covered this. Royalty protects the borders. It puts itself between anything that wants to steal, kill, and destroy anything in their kingdom. And at the top of that list should have been the woman in his life. And so what it should have looked like was, Eve, honey, I've got this. Nice to meet you. I'm Adam. Get the hell out of my home. You may, you may get to my wife. You, you, you may get to us, but if you're gonna get to any of us, I'm gonna take some scars and it will be over my dead body. God has entrusted me to rule and to reign in this environment and I am the one he has entrusted to to make everything fruitful here. And so if you get to anything that's behind me, it will be over my dead body. Now, what's wild is, and maybe you've never connected these dots, everything that Adam did wrong that led to the fall all points to the son of man where you see Adam there in the Garden of Eden being passive and just sitting back. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane actively taking on all the temptation, where we see Adam go to the tree and eat of it. We see Jesus go to the cross and be hung on a tree, where we see Jesus take everything that Adam was supposed to be and who he was supposed to be, where, where Adam should have said, over my dead body, Jesus declares over my dead body to a world looking around. And then as he raises from the grave, sows, I keep my promises and I'll keep them to you. 
If you're here and you're still caught up on the fact that I said hell, that's the most theologically accurate thing I could have said. I'm not trying to be cute. I'm not trying to be slick. That lie is the native tongue of hell and it slithered right up into the garden and spoke it in there. So that's, that's the purpose and that's the truth in Jesus. And so what Jesus does as he takes the mistake that Adam made is he comes in and says, now through the mistake that damned everyone, I'm coming in and bringing righteousness back to everyone. Uh, there's an amazing verse in Romans. Uh, we're actually, we're almost close to it. I wanna show it to you here. Uh, Paul's writing to the church in Rome and he says this. He says, for just as though, as through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners. That's what he's talking about the fall. He's talking about Adam. That, that man there is Adam. Also through the obedience, that's Jesus, of the one man, the many will be made righteousness. It's obedience and disobedience. And here's the good news. Even though our original creation, the person who uh, we are hardwired to be just like Adam, even though he was disobedient, and friend, so will you be, through the obedience of one man, Jesus, you can be made righteous. We can be made righteous. It's gonna take surrendering to him, surrendering to who he is. Because what Jesus invites us into is building this new kingdom. That's why when he showed up, and again, remember, the whole reason we're talking about this whole solid ground thing is because at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he gave that metaphor. But go all the way back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows up on the scene and he goes, blessed is the one who is poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? the kingdom of God. Now, why would you get a kingdom of God? Why would you get the kingdom if you weren't invited also to reign and to rule in that kingdom? Again, as God's royal image bearer. But again, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. A few weeks ago, I sat in a room uh, full of people who most of you guys know, and you would look up to those people as, as spiritual heroes in your life. People who are part of this church, who you think have it all together, read their Bible more than anybody else and everything else. And I sat around the room and almost one for one of every person in the room, I heard them talk about their self-doubt and how their self-doubt holds them back from being who God created them to be. And I think sometimes we can hear that word, blessed are the poor in spirit, and we think that means, oh, I have to be self-doubtful. Oh, I have to beat up on myself. I have to push down and be at poverty and, and, not, and just think I'm just a, you know, a piece of garbage and I'm just a worm dirt and I'll never amount to anything and everything else. Poor in spirit is not self-doubt. Poor in spirit is self-awareness. And it's awareness of who God is. The fact that you absolutely 100% do not have what it takes. But with God's help, you can when you acknowledge that you could never do it on yourself that that when you acknowledge that your own attempts to muster up your own levels of obedience will never be enough when you realize that it is only through your faithfulness to Christ that you can be faithful to Christ and that surrender that comes with that it unlocks the keys it unlocks the door so that you can walk in and say God this kingdom is now mine and I'm humbly and obediently ruling and reigning over it and so practically speaking to the fellows in the room, if what it looks like to be a royal man is obeying the word of God alone and providing and protecting, where are you at, man? You know, we're, we're, we'll start with obey. Whose voice have you either passively or actively allowed into your life to speak more volume than God's? And let's go to provide and protect. Are you really providing the environment they need to be all that God has called them to be? Or are you really even providing the environment for yourself to be who God has called you to be? 
And do you really know what's going on in their life enough to protect them from what's going on in their life? Or are you like your forefather, Adam, passive? Well, I'll let, I'll let the wife pray with him at, at bed. I'll, I'll let, I'm sure, um, I'll, let, I'll let their other grandma and grandpa take them to church or I'll let I'll, whatever happen or, or I'll, you know, I'll let the schools teach them about their gender and idea. I don't wanna have a conversation about birds and beads and sexuality. I'll let the schools do that. That's what they're for. Where are you being passive? In the same way that Satan slithered right up to Eve in the garden without Adam saying a word. My prayer is, fellas, that there is not a snake in your house that you know is right there, but you refuse to say a word because you're scared of some conflict. And again, if you don't have what it takes to beat him, but I preached this Bible verse the day my dad was shot and killed. It's my heart. It's, it, it's what gives me strength and hopes and times of courage. You don't have what it takes to face the enemy. But Romans 16, 20, it says this, it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God, he's a God of peace. Now again, a God of peace with who? God of peace with you, friend. You're at peace with God. So because you're at peace with God because you don't have to go, oh God, can I do this? Am I okay with this? God says, no, I want you to crush the head of the enemy. Now, crazy is that? That God would say to people like me and you fellas, hey, um, I for sure scored the goal by the empty tomb but I'm gonna let you do the victory dance on its head. And guys, it's time to, to be real. It's time to be honest. It's time to take a realistic inventory of what's going on in our lives. And, and listen, I, I think sometimes we take that inventory and we just go, let's just dial it back a little bit. Let's just turn the two Jack and Cokes after we get home down to one. Let's just turn mindless, numbing, dumb, scrolling through TikTok and slides and scripts and all these other types of things for hours and hours on end. Let's just do that less. Let's not do that in the morning. Man, you can't slowly kill a snake. It's gotta be swift. I think God's looking for some swift move of action. And my prayer is that you, you know that our call is to put it to death not to dial it back. And so when it comes to obedience, you gotta know this, fellas, a few quick things. Uh, and this is really not just a fellas thing, this is everybody thing. A few quick things on obedience. Obedience always leads to opposition. You start running after God, guarantee. I told the men Tuesday morning, I said, fellas, you're either gonna leave out of here and your week's gonna get great, or you're gonna leave out of here and you're gonna have one of the worst weeks of your life because Satan's saying, no, sir, get back in your lane. He's gonna come after you. Obedience is always gonna to lead to opposition. Second thing you gotta know is this, is if obedience always leads to opposition, then if you're not ready to face some opposition by obeying God, then you're not ready to be used by God. The, the people in your life that matter the most to you, you're gonna be sitting around going, where were you? And your only excuse is I, I, wasn't, I wasn't willing to face some opposition. I wasn't willing to walk into that conflict. No, Jesus went through the conflict of the cross so you could handle whatever conflict you may come into by being the man of the cross that he calls you to be as you take up your own. The last thing is this, and you see this on display through Jesus as he gives his life and he rises from the grave. Obedience is up to you. Obedience is up to us, man, woman, boy and girl, everybody. Obedience is up to us, but the outcome is up to God. The outcome is in the Father's hands. The outcome is in the King's court. It's his outcome. 
And the thing that we'll talk, this is how Satan comes in. He gets you in these moments where you're like, oh, I wanna obey. And look, you know it's the right thing. You know, I should confess this. I should talk to my wife about this. I should get some help with this. I should start serving in those places. I should, I should turn my smartphone into a dumb phone. You know all those things. And in your head, if somebody was to come up to you and ask you, is that a good idea? Unequivocally, you would go, yes. The things that talk you out of it are you're afraid of the outcome. Well, what if the people at work start knowing I'm the weird Christian guy? Will I still be looked at favorably? Would I get the promotion? Well, if I start serving down there, Will I still be able to, you know, get, you know, what's that going to require me? What if I stink at it? If I, what if I start giving and I'm generous with my money and we actually live on this crazy thing called a budget? Well, am I going to have enough to make ends meet? The thing that talks you out of the thing you know you need to be obedient to is you're afraid of the outcome. But listen, you're the part of obedience. You're not the God of the outcome. He is. As we get ready to receive communion, that's what it's all about. Jesus is there in the garden. He, he, he's sweating drops of blood. He's saying, God, I want to be obedient with you. I want, to for, I, want to, I want to follow after your will. I want to do these things. I, I want to give my life for you. But if there's any way that this cup and this wrath can pass for me, please let it pass. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Which is him saying, I surrender and I obey. Because when he said, is there any way for this cup to pass? Do you know what he heard? Nothing, that the cup wasn't gonna pass. And he gave his life on that cross for me and for you. And then I love this about the story. A lot of times we read the, the story of the gospels or we sing songs about the resurrection and you read song or you read stories and you hear songs about the resurrection and it always talks about Jesus rose from the grave. And no doubt, Jesus did raise from the grave. But, but read your Bibles. The Father rose him from the grave because he's the God. He's the Father of the outcome to say, Jesus, I promise you, give your life. Lay down on that cross. Die for the sins of all the world. Be punished. Be treated like the worst of sinners so that, so that you would know that your friends, your brothers and sisters, or the rest of our family would actually be able to come in and have faith and have trust and have righteousness and be a part of this royal bloodline. But you're spilling your blood to make them have. Trust that three days later, I'll raise you up, son. I will raise you up because I'm the God of the outcome. And so friends, male, female, doesn't matter this moment. What is God calling you to simply trust and obey him in? And to surrender into that and go, the outcome is on the outside, but as far as my soul, it's well, because I trust in you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this promises are true. Thank you that it is our hope. Jesus, I pray that there's not a single man of God in this room, God, today who feels beat up, pushed down, or hurt. But I pray that you'd allow them to feel whatever conviction they need to feel. But then please, like a loving father, would you wrap your arms around Tell him it's okay. Tell him that you're here now. Tell him that they're not alone. And that because you're with them, beside them and inside them, they do have what it takes to be the man, to be the husband, whether it's in this moment or even in the future that you've created them to be. And Jesus, I pray for the, the women in the room that you would even now in these moments begin to heal the wounds inflicted on them by men who didn't obey you. 
who failed to provide, who failed to protect them from the enemy of their soul. And I pray for their obedience to you, Jesus, that they know that they don't need uh, some man in their life because they have you in their life, Christ, that you are enough and they will be drawn into just perfect unity with you. And help us guys as a church to be led as a family, a family with, with you, Father, as a, as a center, and you, Jesus, as our guide, and you, Holy Spirit, as what shows us what's wrong and what's right. So that we would be who you've created us to be, for the fatherless, for the lost, for the hopeless and lonely, and every other one in our city who does not know you yet. For their sake and for your glory, change us. In your name, amen.